Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Investors Gallery. For those who are new, because we have a, a, another celebrity on today, and you're just finding out about the podcast, um, Investors Gallery is a podcast that I do in the home that I built. Not the home, actually, I'm sorry, the office. So everything behind me, if you're watching on video, I built, but more importantly, on the other side is an art gallery that I built as well. The running joke is, sooner or later, we're going to shoot this in the actual art gallery. So that's why it's called Investors Gallery. So my name is Presley. I'm here in Houston, and I am half of Dimensional Capital Partners. The other half is Melvin Faraby. He is also a securities attorney, and we do multifamily um, stabilize and development as well. So Matt, I am so... Soon as I put on the interwebs that you were going to be on, people started coming out the woodworks like, wow, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> so I, I read I read your background and obviously I see a lot of your posts, but for those who um, don't know you and don't know your background, give a little bit about uh, what you do, what you did, and then how you got into real estate. And then we'll go from there as I drink my caffeinated juice. Oh, caffeinated juice. Yes, my I, my brain shuts off at eight o'clock, so this is the only way I can stay up and and talk. But to that's really five. that's that that is really caffeinated. And yeah, it's called um it's called buy. Oh, I've As seen it in the store. Okay, yeah, yeah I've seen it in the store. I didn't know what it was. And it's, oh, and it's healthy. Funny. Well, I'm just drinking some H two O right now, so I'm a little boring, but. I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and I moved to New York City to pursue a career in theater. And I was actually a professional actor for, for five years. I was in 15 different productions all across the United States. Started yeah. doing some, some hobby work in computers back in the late 90s and ended up starting my own digital agency doing website development um, back in the, like I said, in the dot-com heydays of the, of the late 90s. 2001 came along and the dot-com bubble burst and all of my clients were going out of business mm -hmm. and my business was imploding. I mean, if, if they if my, my client wasn't going out of business, they definitely weren't spending money on any digital marketing. Right. And just at that perfect timing, I got a phone call from my landlord who told me I had 90 days to get out of the apartment that I was living in. So here I was in New York City without really a job with a business that has completely failed, wanted to stay in New York, but didn't know how to do it. Uh, in that 90-day in that period, I ended up getting a job at Showtime. They were a client of mine, the, the cable television channel. So I started working there. And instead of renting another apartment, I actually found an apartment to buy. Now, it wasn't where I wanted to live. It was way, way, way upper, upper Manhattan in, in an area called Washington Heights, but it was something that I could afford at the time. And a little over two years later, I ended up selling that apartment and seeing my initial investment more than quadruple in value. Wow. Yeah. So that was an amazing moment for me in that one transaction I made more than an entire year's worth of salary. And I had a pretty good job at that point. So I wanted to know, how can I make that happen again? And that's was it a surprise? Did you, did you know that the values were going up or you said, you know, it's time to no, move? I, oh, wow. I had no idea. I mean, I, I knew that real estate was something good to do. At one point uh, in, when I was a kid, my dad was a real estate broker for a period of time. He then went into the food service industry. But so I had, you know, known about 
like about real estate. I didn't really know how to do real estate, but I had, you know, my dad had done a little something here and there. And so I figured uh, it's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to buy. And, and, you know, when I bought that place in Washington Heights, I really wanted to live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, uh, but the rent prices were very high. So it was actually less expensive for me on a monthly basis to actually buy the apartment that I bought versus renting. Wow, okay. Now, I knew that apartment values tend to go up over time, right? Real estate tends to go up over time, but I had no idea that I'd be able to sell it in two years and have such a great return. And I mean, we can talk a little bit more about that deal. The, the, there's really three factors that, that that deal did so well. Number one, Real estate just in New York in general during those couple of years did exceptionally well. Number two, I was in the Washington Heights area, which was vastly improving. And, you know, they put a Starbucks on the corner just as I was moving in. Oh, wow. So that, that whole area was on the up, upward traje trajectory. Mm -hmm. um, but also, I did some improvements on the property. You know, when I bought the apartment, there was a lot of cracks in the wall. So I got someone to come in and plaster those up and fill all the cracks and paint the place and made the place look nicer. But the the building itself was very dated looking. Um, I remember we had these like really disgusting, dirty pink leather couches in the in the lobby area. And I met, so when I first moved in there, this guy that I had known from my acting days actually had recently moved in there, maybe a year or two prior. And he was on the board. So this was a co-op building. He was on the co-op board. And I started talking with him. And we had been, we had a mutual friend. That's how I had known him from years ago. And we became very friendly. And he said, hey, listen, um, we're thinking about the board, like, because I had mentioned sometime, like, oh, we should update the lobby. And he said, we're going to make a committee to renovate the lobby. Like, would you want to be on that? And I said, sure. And I worked with him. It was actually me and him, another volunteer, another person from the board. And we hired an interior designer and we redesigned the lobby and we redesigned the hallways. And so when all of that was done, the place looked a lot like much, much nicer and much more expensive than it had mm. been when I bought it. And it turned out that it actually was. And I sold it for a very nice profit. And then was able to use those proceeds to go ahead and buy an apartment where I really wanted to live. Um, mm. And, and um, you know, the, the story kind of just goes on and on from there. But that was really my first foray into real estate. And the thing that opened my eyes to the power of real estate investment. And then I did it as a hobby for about 10 years. Um, wow doing little things. And then about seven years ago, uh, I moved from New York City to Miami with my wife. She got a really cool job opportunity in Miami. We moved down there. And that's when I made the transition from part-time real estate to full-time real estate. And I became a full-time real estate investor and ultimately a real estate syndicator. So what I do now is I buy large apartment complexes and I invite my friends, my real estate friends who are investors to come along with me on those investments and we'll pool our capital together and we'll buy these large apartment complexes anywhere from, uh, you know, 100 units to the, the largest thing we bought was a portfolio of a little over 1300 units. Wow. How did you make the choice to leave um, your passion of acting in, in that circle to full time real estate? 
Yeah, you know, it never was a conscious decision of, hey, I'm no longer going to act again. I had been on the road for about five years. Uh, I think I mentioned 15 different productions throughout the United States. I actually performed in every major city in the continental U.S. Wow. And I just was sick of traveling so much. And I wanted to just stay in New York. I felt like, look, five years, I've done a lot of regional theater. I've done a lot of tours. I've paid my dues. And I wanted to wait for a Broadway show. And I had... You know, at the time, Rent was running on Broadway. That was a big, big hit at the time. And I had a number of callbacks for that show. So I thought, hey, maybe eventually in a certain amount of time, I would get that show or another show. And um, while I was sort of, you know, waiting for my Broadway debut, if you will, I started doing website development instead of so i before that i was waiting tables at the hard rock cafe in between acting jobs right i was mm-hmm. in a, i was a waiter and yeah. um i learned some skills on the computer and was able to actually work you know normal hours and make really good money in between you know while i was waiting for my broadway opportunity mm-hmm. and what happened was i was freelancing at a bunch of different well they they didn't call them digital marketing back there. It used to be called new media. So I was working at these new media agencies back then. And um, I was working at one and I got a phone call from somebody who had worked there who wanted me to work on, on a project. But I was already working on a project from nine to five. And I said, well, I can work on a project for you, but I have to do it like from home. Like I can't come into your office. And she was like, I don't care. That's fine. And she offered me even more than I had been getting paid at the other place. So I started doing that at night. And then I started doing it where I was just working from home, like all the time. And then there was so much coming in, I couldn't do it all myself. So I got another desk and I would hire people to come in and work with me out of my apartment. And, you know, I would charge like a slight markup on, you know, whatever I was paying them hourly. And then I needed to get a third desk and I had no more room in my little New York City apartment. (laughs) So then I got an office space. And that's kind of how that thing just organically grew to a point where I had five different desks in an office space on 19th Street. And things were just booming and booming and booming until the the bubble burst. And then that was the, the rude awakening that I had. Now, during that that boom time, which was about five years when, from once I started the agency to the time we closed our doors, um, I did get a call from a casting agent. And when you're a young actor and you're trying to get known and trying to make a name for yourself in the business, I mean, getting a call from a casting director, that's like amazing, right? And the mm. reason why I got the call was a director who I had worked with before was doing a production of Cinderella, actually, that was going to go to Broadway. And um, Debbie Gibson, remember Debbie Gibson, mm. uh, the pop star? She was in it, and also Eartha Kitt. They were both going to wow. be in it. And I was, I was got brought in by the director, and I went in to do my, you know, sing and and do a dance routine or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I go in there and I was terrible. (laughs) So bad because I hadn't done it. I had been so busy with my business and really enjoying my business because before that I used to train. I had a voice teacher. I would go to dance classes. I would go to acting classes. Like I would do all the things you need to do. I mean, just think about like a, a star athlete. If they don't work out or go to practice for a year, 
they're not going to be good. Five. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it had been, I think about like a year or two since I hadn't really done any class. I mean, I got the mm. phone call and I got on the call with, I got on the phone with my voice teacher, like, Hey, can you squeeze me in? Like I tried to get back in shape, but I didn't do a great audition. I did. Okay. I did get a call back. Um, so that was really cool. And um, ultimately I didn't get the part, but while that whole thing was going on, I was wondering, like, if I get this part, I want to go do it. But how is my business even going to function yeah. if I'm away? Yeah. So once I found out I didn't get the role, it was almost a sigh of relief because I was like, I didn't know how I was going to do everything. And I thought about it. I was like, I haven't done the acting thing at that point now for, for a couple of years, two, three years, yeah. you know. And, and I was like, you know what? Like, I don't miss it. Yeah. And when I was younger and I was learning to be an actor, every teacher I had always told me, Matt, it is such a hard job. Like you can be on Broadway one day and the next day your show closes for no fault of your own and you can be out of work, right? Wow, it, yeah. It's such a hard lifestyle. It's such a hard trying to be a performer. Like if there's anything you could possibly see yourself doing and you'd be happy doing that, like do something else. And I was always <laughs> like, no, this is what I want to do. This is my chosen path. Like, this is what yeah. I, this is what I'm passionate about. And through, you know, the circumstances of life that had come up and me tinkering around with computers and then people basically throwing money at me to do something, <laughs> start my own company. And we had a really cool office culture. It was like really fun. And I was like having the time of my life. And I was like, wow, I really love what I'm doing now. Yeah. And I'm making good money what's the thing? And I'm not really missing that. I don't miss being out of work every three months and <laughs> struggling and looking for, you know, mm. I really, really loved what I was doing. So I just continued down that path. So there was never a conscious decision of like, I'm not going to act anymore, except for like, mm. maybe then. but I think yeah. I had already like stopped acting. It was just more kind of like a realization. I was like, yeah. oh yeah, I guess I'm not an actor anymore. Yeah. It kind the of universe just chose for you. Yeah, you know, it kind of did. It kind of just sort of happened. Um, and I'm happy with it, you know. And I'm it, interestingly enough, and we'll as we continue through my story or whatever, we can loop back around to it, but I'm very much involved in the theater now uh, and a big supporter of the arts. It's something that's really important to me and something I'm passionate about, but it's really something that I do kind of on my own time on the side. Mm, that's the best way to do it yeah to give back awesome. so take us back so you was it my I don't know why Miami Florida what did you move to from New York with your wife when your wife got the job that's right Miami okay so yeah take us so back my there, wife so you... works on the business side of Broadway okay and she got an opportunity uh out of the blue uh that was down in Miami and it was just too good of an opportunity for her to pass up so we moved down there and that's when I decided to make the transition from the corporate digital marketing world. You know, I had worked up to be a vice president at an advertising agency uh, yeah. to, to go ahead and, and, and pursue the, the real estate, which was really what my passion was. I had been doing it as a hobby for 10 years and really wanted to pursue that. And and did that. And, you know, it was a struggle for the first couple of years, honestly. Uh, it, it took me two years to get my first deal 
that I syndicated, that I brought out to investors. Now, during that time I was investing, I had a little nest egg I had saved up over the years and I was investing in other people's deals, multifamily syndication type deals. Um, and I did some fix and flips during that time as well. But um, it took me about two years to get my first deal as a syndicator where I put my own money behind a deal I really love and told you know, 30 of my closest friends, hey, come join me on this opportunity. And they did. And uh, we bought a property, a 132-unit property, $10 million purchase price. And uh, we sold that property um, a couple of years later and made a very nice profit. When you, I want to hear about your first um, property that you went passive on because you were passive on all of your deals up until that point. Yeah. What was the thought process? How did you link up with the the whoever you syndicated with to to be a um, a LP? How did that work? And how did those connections get made? Because you wasn't you were coming from a totally different state. Well, I was. So I was living in Miami and I was flipping some properties and devouring everything I could get my hands on when it came to real estate, whether that was books, whether that was podcasts. If uh, any person coming into town doing a seminar, I was joining it, going to it, trying to learn. And believe it or not, because it's really hard nowadays to go and look for a podcast and not find one on syndication, not find yeah. one on multifamily. But back then, back in early 2016, I couldn't find a darn thing about multifamily syndication. Wow. I didn't even know that multifamily syndication existed. Yeah. Okay. Th that's number one. But number two, there just wasn't anything out there, at least that came across my radar that did it. And I was listening to some pod, I don't know, maybe it was bigger pockets of the real estate guys or something. I don't know. It was yeah. some uh it was some podcast that I was listening. I think it was bigger pockets, and maybe one of the guys from the real estate guys was, I don't know, somehow through the rabbit hole of hearing different guests on different podcasts somewhere along the way. I heard somebody mention something about a real estate syndication mm. and that something about pooling people's money together. And I'm like, wait, 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 what's <laughs> rewind? <that. laughs> well, because there's, there's really, there's a, there's a premise to all of that. So I had bought an apartment in Brooklyn, New York, a, a townhome, two family mm -hmm. town. Mm -hmm. I did what, what, what the kids nowadays are calling a house hack, mm -hmm. but I didn't, I didn't know there was such a thing. All I knew was like the numbers worked. I could, <laughs> one of the, was well, a two family, right? And one of the units uh, was rented and they were paying more than what half of my mortgage would be. They were paying more than half. Mm. So I was like, oh, wow, the numbers make sense on this. And so we bought it, we moved in, we were in one unit. And I thought to myself, this is back when I'm working in advertising full-time. Well, if I were to sell this apartment, like, we renovated the unit that we were in, uh, so it was nicer unit, and we had the backyard. Mm. Meanwhile, the upstairs tenants had a not nicer unit and did not have a backyard, and they were paying more than what mm. half my mortgage payment was. So I knew that if I moved out and rented my apartment, I would be making more money. I'd be able to pay the mortgage and have surplus, right? right? Positive cash flow. 
And so I was like, wow, I didn't want to do that. Like, I need to buy another one. The problem is, it's, you know, you can't get anything in Brooklyn. You can't get a townhouse in Brooklyn for less than, you know, it's well over a million bucks, yeah, right? Nowadays, yep. And no, back back then it was, you know, I mean, nowadays it's like three Because they used to be cheap though, right? They used to be dirt cheap until they started. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, depending on where and depending on the neighborhood and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But like mm-hmm. back then, I mean, still, you know, to buy a townhouse, you know, in this neighborhood back then, you know, probably would have cost around, you know, you know, one and a half million bucks, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. So you would probably need like a $400,000 down payment, maybe, you know, right. depending on how you finance it. Right. I didn't have that kind of money. Around. <laughs> like it just, right. it didn't exist for me. So, you know, what, what I did was I, I thought if I just continue to work my job, my nine to five job, and I was getting paid pretty well as a VP at, a, at an agency at this point, And my wife was doing her thing. I could save up money and maybe over the next like five or six years, I might have enough saved up to buy another townhome, you know, like the one we had. If prices stayed the same, obviously they wouldn't make go up over time, but maybe I would eventually save up enough money to buy another one and then do that again, like maybe four times, you know, maybe if I could have four or five townhomes, then maybe at that point, you know, I would be at retirement age and have some 401k, right? Maybe I've grinded it out and I'm able to retire and have money. You know, that's, that was my viewpoint because I didn't know how to get, how can I get money and buy another townhome? How am I going to come up with 400, 500k, whatever I needed, right? And um, when we moved down to Miami, uh, and I started hearing about syndicate. Well, I started flipping properties and I had friends who would say to me, Hey, like, I, you know, cause I'd share them from, Oh yeah, I'm doing this thing. And it's kind of cool. And they'd be, Oh, what is, how much money are you going to make or whatever we talk about? Yeah. And so oh, can I, can I invest in one of your flips? But they were really small deals, you know, like I would maybe make like 10 grand or 20 grand off of a deal. And it was like, it seemed like too small to like split with somebody. And I, <laughs> I didn't even know how you would work that out. You know, like, how would that work out? And, you know, they're putting in money, but I'm also putting in money. And how do I, how do they get what percentage with that? I just didn't even know how to do that. So I just never did it, but I had people who were interested. And now I'm like, oh, I'm hearing about syndication. And now I could talk to my friends who wanted to like invest in deals I was doing and I could do bigger deals. Mm-hmm. And that was really appealing to me. And that's why I, I, that's why I wanted to, to do the syndication. I joined, I went to some conferences. I met different people. One of the first people that I met at my first conference was actually in a mentorship group that I ended up joining. And that guy and I became very good friends. Um, and he ended up getting a deal Hmm. and he said, Hey man, I got a deal. And I'm like, I'm investing in your deal. Right. Who am I'm I going to invest in? My first deal, I'm going to invest with my friend, right? So I invested with him. You know, I have a book called Backstage Guide to Real Estate that I wrote. Mm-hmm. And I detail all of this in the book because it was an amazing learning experience. 
But the deal was like a colossal, well, I don't want to say colossal failure, but it was almost a colossal failure. It was close enough, it sounds like. <laughs> it was really, really bad. It went really, really sideways. Luckily, and the thing that I, the biggest takeaway from that deal was the person that I invested with, that sponsor, he would not let that deal go down in flames. Mm. You know, he he's actually an airplane pilot and he landed that plane safely mm. now we didn't really make it we made a min minuscule profit and when you factor in the fact that we were in the deal for several years and you know the opportunity cost of having my money tied up in that deal but i put in a certain amount and i walked away with just a teeny bit more than that certain amount so that was fine but it's all because of him i mean had it been anybody else i think we would have crashed and burned i would have lost maybe all of my money, at least if yeah. not a significant portion of it. And that's when I came really clear to me that the most important thing in these deals is, is who's running the deal. Yeah. You know, I talk about in the book, the three deal pillars, which are um, the sponsor. That's the person who's running the deal, the market, and then the deal itself. And out of those three, the most important is the sponsor. What are some things that uh, your partner did to save the deal? Oh, he just left no stone unturned. Mm, okay. He did every single thing he could to keep that property afloat. And at the very end, with a little bit of luck, he was able to find a person who was uh, in a 1031 exchange situation. Mm -hmm and had capital that needed to be deployed in a relatively short period of time. And um, this was just a small portion. This guy had like gazillions of dollars. He was 1031 mm -hmm. and he picked up uh, the property um, for us. And I mean, now, you know, if, if you have a longer time horizon and knowing what's happened now, hindsight 2020, he, that guy probably did extremely well on the deal. But at the time, we were happy to just get out, you know. Yeah. Um, and we didn't have the money to keep the deal afloat for an indefinite period of time, which we would have needed to make it a success. Mm -hmm. well, what are some takeaways you think you learned specifically from that property or from that deal? Well, the, the biggest one was, was the, the sponsor, right? And, and, mm -hmm. and knowing who the sponsor is and really understanding what their track record is. There's a million other little things that I learned, like, um, you know, how to really look at the underwriting on a deal. I mean, I was very, <laughs> it, was, it was my first time. And so there's been so many lessons learned, but you know, that was one. The other one was like over-improvement. Don't over-improve your property. They, yeah. they misread their sub-market. They thought they were in a much nicer sub-market. So we end up spending, I don't know, ten or twelve thousand dollars, and this is several years ago, um, renovating the units. Like they did granite countertops. And oh all wow! That they that that were not needed, and yeah. you know later on in the project we ended up renovating a unit for like two thousand dollars with no granite countertops and got the same amount of rent for the one with the granite counter. You know, like, so people, yeah, people can only pay a certain amount, right? Depending yeah. on where your market is and, and what the demographics for that property are, what's the household income and all of those other kinds of things. And if you don't look at them, you can over-improve, but you know, if someone's only making 
$30,000 a year, mm-hmm. they're only going to qualify for $10,000 a year in rent, no matter what, right. no right. matter if it's the Taj Mahal or it's a little mm-hmm. studio, you know, it doesn't exactly. matter. That's what they can afford. And people who live in that area who can afford that certain price, that's, that's what it is. So they just, they misread the market uh, the, and they, they over-improved. So that, mm. that was a that was a big lesson to me, you know. Hey, make sure you don't over. I kind of knew that anyhow from the fix and flips I had done. Yeah. Um, but but that was a that was that was a big big problem that we had on that property. So how many deals between that deal and your hundred and thirty two unit, or the the one that you did by yourself? Well, not by yourself, but the one that you you bought to market. I invested passively. I think it was five deals. Okay. Before I had my first deal as a sponsor. And it wasn't the type of thing where I wanted to wait, like, oh, I need to have a certain amount of deals. Uh, the the passive investing was sort of twofold for me. Number one, I had some capital that I wanted to deploy, that I wanted to invest in something. And number two, I wanted to invest in multifamily syndicators so I could learn from what other people were doing. I was very honest and very open with those sponsors. They all knew that I wanted to do sponsorship myself. Yeah. Um, and actually I had conversations with all of them saying, hey, if I invest in your deal, I wanna know that I'm gonna be able to once in a while and not be obnoxious about it. But once in a while, if I have a question about something, I wanna know that I can you know, send you an email or maybe even have a quick co- phone call with you so you mm-hmm. can maybe explain stuff to me. And they all were like, Sure, no problem. They were all really great about it. And um, so I did. I, I deployed capital into five different deals uh, over the course. And it was never, I never mm-hmm. had, like I said, a number set in mind. I just as deals presented yeah. themselves, I would review them. And when I found something that seemed right, I would do that. And so by the time I did my first deal, which was two years later, um, and I had been searching and looking at deals and looking in different markets. Um, I really felt comfortable with the whole process. You know, you can learn only so much from, you know, reading books or podcasts or even mentorship groups. When you're actually doing a deal and you're reading, you know, 100 pages of legal documents between the PPM (laughs) and the subscription document, and they're done by different attorneys. So you get to see the way different people do their deal. One deal I was almost ready to do, and I didn't like the way something was written and something was structured. And I walked away from that thing Mm. because I didn't like the way they were doing it. Interestingly enough, I pointed out to the sponsor, they didn't realize it was set up that way either. And they actually didn't like it, but it was great. They already had deployed it out and they had, yeah. you know, a ton of people had already invested in the deal. <clears throat> like, wait, it doesn't say that. I'm like, well, on page 72, it actually, and they were like, oh, wait, you're right. And then they called their attorney and called me back. They're like, you're right. That's what it says. And I'm like, yeah, I don't feel comfortable. <laughs> um, but um, the, the, so I learned a lot. And also by being invested in these deals, I saw reporting that I was getting. And I saw different sponsors' communication styles. And mm. so from that, I was able to say, you know, I like that this guy did that. I don't like that this other guy did that. This girl did this thing really well. So I want to mm-hmm. emulate what she's doing, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to sort of put together my own thing. but And also based on my own working in corporate America for a while, I had my own yeah. business practices as well. But kind of just meld it all together into the... Um, uh, the the you know 
brand of uh, reporting that I do now, <laughs> which I like. I think it's really good. You know, up front in the body of the email, you get all your major KPIs and then you can drill down further if you want to. I just, I like it that way. I, I don't love when... I get a monthly report and it's like the monthly report is now on the portal. And then you have to like click on the portal and yeah. log into the portal and then download a PDF from the portal. And then it's like, okay, <laughs> steps. when like, just put it in the body of the email, at least the top line, you know, top line, yeah. tell me what's going on. And then if I want to drill down, I'll drill down. Yeah. Um, you know, especially when, yeah, you know, as a passive investor, you grow. I mean, right now, Two thirds of my portfolio or deals I'm a limited partner in, that's over 7,000 apartment units that I'm invested in wow. passively. So yeah. I get a lot of monthly reports and it's like, I don't want to have to like log in to, you know, 20 different portals and download 20 different PDFs. Like if I can just get everything top line and see how it's going, if it's going great, fine. You know, I, I actually, I archive all my emails by deal so you can go back if I want to, but you know, drag it into that folder and then go to the next one. Now, if there's one that's having a problem or there's a question about it or something like that, then I can dive in deeper. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. How has your style of um, underwriting as an LP or, or even as a GP, how has it changed from when you first started looking at these syndications, you're getting into it and you're understanding, okay, this is how the numbers work. This is how the returns work what's changed in your thought process and what's changed in what you think is a good deal between then and now? You know, I, I don't even, uh, I, I'm not sure um, that I, I'll, I'll give some, some tidbits of it, but, you know, having been in the business now for seven years that I've been looking at it, there's never been a um, one monumental shift in the way that I've approached the underwriting, um, it's been incremental over time. Mm. And for me to try to remember all the way back, you know, I don't, I don't know that I can, but I learn different things uh, as we go through, right? Um, and also certain things have changed. Like, you know, I mean, I used to have a ballpark number for insurance before I'd get a quote from an insurance vendor and that's gone up considerably, oh, right? Yeah. Per unit. Um, I've learned that I always work with a tax consultant when I'm trying to figure out the property taxes because there's a bunch of stuff that they know that I can't figure out from just looking at the millage rate and doing, mm -hmm. you know, determining mm -hmm. it that way. Um, you know, I, I understand that I have, I think, realistic expectations in the type of uh, growth in income that we can have from one year to another, and especially from the the T the T three into your first year of operations. It's something that I, it's actually a standard that I, that I use when I'm, a lot of these standards are standards that I use when I'm looking at an LP deal too. If, mm -hmm. if the syndicator doesn't match that uh, underwriting, then I'm not going to invest in it. And that's the underwriting that I expect to be able to present to my investors, right? Like I invested my own deals. So my deals are going to be just as good as anything that I would invest in. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, I see these, I'll just dwell on this for one minute. Mm -hmm. uh, I see this underwriting that sometimes I just, you know, kind of boggles my mind where their year one income is going to go up by this, you know, incredible amount. And <laughs> um, a lot of times 
people can't tell that, you know, as a, as a passive investor, yeah. a lot of times the syndicator is not presenting the T12 or the T3. I always do. I'm always showing them the T3 and the T12 in my investor summary, but a lot of times you're not seeing that. And so you're in a situation where, you know, they're going to have a 30% increase in revenue in the first year. And, you know, you buy a multifamily property and let's say you close on it on January 1st to be, you know, just to make this like nice and even, right? A yeah. good example. You're not really going to be able to affect rents until probably March, right? Because on January 1st, obviously all the January uh, leases are in place. Right. Probably if the pro previous ownership and property management was any good, probably a good portion of February is already in place. And then probably some of March is already in place. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe not, right? But, but so you're really not going to be able to, and, and even if the lease is in, in, in effect, they've usually sent, I mean, because we're always sending out starting 90 days in advance, we're sending out renewal notices. So they have gotten, at least March has gotten a renewal notice that tells them how much their rent's going to be. Mm -hmm. So the first chance we have to raise any rents is not going to be until April. Right. And typically, and it, this is a very general rule of thumb, and you could point out to me a million cases where this is not the case, but typically renters stay in an apartment for three years. So you've got maybe 30% of your property turning over any given year. Right. So that first year, that first month, April, you only have one twelfth of that 30% <laughs> yeah. that you can raise their rent, right? And then the next month, then you get the next one. So you're not mm -hmm. even going to make it all the way through the rent roll until the next April. You know, you've only got nine months of rent roll to go through. Right. So you don't even have that full 30% of people to go through. It's 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 impossible to raise the rents 30% unless you're buying an apartment that has a tremendous amount of vacancy, you're leasing it up, right? If you if you're buying a property that's 30% occupied, well, then of course you can. But most of these deals are stabilized properties. We're talking 90% occupied for the past 90 days or more. And I just, I can't see, I've never seen anybody be able to raise rents more than, uh, raise in income by maybe more like 10%. Because mm -hmm. even if you're doing other things like cable contracts or rubbing back, you know, on the utilities or all yeah. of those things, again, you have to wait until those leases are coming up and then mm -hmm. do it on the new leases. And then you have people who are going to leave. And then you have vacancy and then you're going to renovate the unit while it's vacant. And then you got to lease it back up. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's not realistic. I don't think. Yeah. I see a lot of fuzzy deals uh, being done and I'm like, I don't, I don't know how you're going to achieve that, but uh, more power to you. <laughs> So I used to be a little more aggressive with that in my mm -hmm. earlier days about how much turnover there was going to be and how much I could increase that income into year one and, and year over year. And I've realized out of actually doing this and 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 being successful, but also learning from mistakes to lower that number uh, so that I can hit those numbers and 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 maybe exceed expectations. Um, so I want to talk about or going to where you at where are you at now mentally and um just the general real estate space so are you 
still doing LPs and GPs, just kind of whatever looks the best at the moment. Um, and it, I is have, yeah, I mean, I, I've deployed a certain amount of capital into my LP deals. Um, and right now it's as those, uh, as those properties uh, sell, right? And we exit those properties, then I have that capital that I'll deploy into more deals as an LP. Uh, and then I also have, you know, almost 4,000 units now as a general partner. And as uh, we sell those deals, sometimes, you know, I have more capital to deploy and I'm always deploying capital into, into those deals. Uh, I'm still looking at deals right now. Uh, uh, last limited partnership I invested in was just a couple of days ago. Uh, last deal I did as a general partner, we closed on in October of last year, continuing to look for deals. Uh, mm -hmm. Got a couple of things that have gotten really close. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing at the moment that we're you know in contract under uh, at the moment, but always looking, analyzing and at various stages in uh, the process. How does an investor get your attention? So, hey, I'm, I'm watching this podcast on Facebook or whatever vehicle that I, I run across um, and I have a deal and I shoot you a deal. You're, you're very reachable and you're very responsive. And I really appreciate that. I want to bring that up. Oh, thanks. What, what, what numbers, what thing that you, that you'll see on a deal that says, Hey, this is, looks like it's a pretty good deal. Is it a, a specific IRR number? Is it maybe the area, like the region first and then the, the returns or what, what piques your interest when you see a deal come across your table? Um, you know, that's, it's a little, I can tell you certain metrics that I look for, but I, I, I'll say this. If somebody was watching, you know, us right now on Facebook and had this deal, even if it was like the deal of a lifetime and sent me an email with it, uh, the odds are I'm probably not going to invest in it. And the reason why is, as I mentioned before, the most important thing I think is the person who's running the deal. Mm -hmm. And so if I don't have a relationship with that person and I don't know who they are, it's very unlikely that I'm going to invest in the deal. However, Presley, if you're like, hey, this guy, Joe, he's really great. I know him. I've invested in his deals before. They're really good. You should meet him. Mm -hmm. I'd want to meet Joe right. and get to know Joe. And then maybe when Joe had a deal, or maybe when it's the second or third deal I've seen of Joe's, or when Joe has a little bit of a track record, then I would start to feel more comfortable uh, right. doing it. So I, that's the most important thing to me. And this is really is a relationship business uh, from, from so many different aspects, but it matters to me who the person is who's running the deal first and foremost. Beyond that, in terms of metrics, you know, I like to see deals that are, um, let me take a sip of water real quick. <laughs> I like to see deals where um, there's a strong cash flow component. Mm -hmm. I think I mentioned earlier that I have a book. And in my book, I share these 18 different keystone concepts that I've learned along my journey. And keystone concept number five is cash flow is king. Mm. As long as you have really good cash flow, you can ride out the dips 
in the yeah. market cycles and those are inevitable. There's always going to be ups and downs, but if you have cash flow, you can weather the storm when there's a storm and ride it out to the other side. And so that's really important to me as a strong cash flow component. I like to see the deals that I invest in, you know, if, if it's a if it's like a standard multifamily, you know, value add type of thing, if we can double our money in five to seven years, great. I don't want to see a refinance written in there mm -hmm. uh, as part of the deal. I want to see a deal that works without a refinance in year three. I don't like a year of refinance in year three. And before anyone starts hating on me about refinances, <laughs> keystone concept number 18 in my book is refinance when you can. I love refinancing. It is wonderful. It is an amazing, amazing tool. But I want to invest in a deal that is not predicated on what, yeah. you know, my guess of what interest rates and cap rates are going to be three years from now for this refinance. This, I, I, I have a, uh, I, I post on, you've seen on, on LinkedIn, I, I write an article every month. I put it on my blog and, and, and everything. And I did one, uh, gosh, almost maybe about a year ago now called the mythical year three refinance. <laughs> and I always use like an image and my image is like, there's like this unicorn, like standing mm -hmm. on a mountaintop <laughs> with wings. Like, you know, I mean, Sure, that's cool. Unicorns are cool. Just ask my two little girls, but like, are they real? I don't know. Yeah, so yeah. this this three year, this year three refinance, look, if if you can do it, do it 100 percent It's awesome if you're in year three and you're in an advantageous position 100 percent but the deal should work without that. Yeah, don't put it that's, in your underwriting. Yeah, you know. Or put it in your underwriting and be, hey, here's scenario without the refinance. Look, it works. And here's the scenario with the right refinance. Look how good it could be on mm -hmm. the upside. But, you know, it, it's got to work without that. So those are the kind of things I like to see. But, you know, one of the most important things for me, um, and I've talked about this many times on, on several stages, in articles, in the book, I mean, just everywhere is, is, when I'm looking at the sponsor, I want to make sure that I'm aligned with them from a philosophical standpoint. Mm -hmm. And, you know, true story, I, when I was very early on, my first deal that I was going to invest in before the airplane pilot uh, was another guy, and he had some properties and in a certain uh, location. And he would do tours at that location. So I, like, I went there, I went to the city and saw a bunch of the properties that this person had. And, you know, I just, I wasn't expecting, you know, a palace, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, but what I saw was really run down. Mm. And these weren't properties that were just acquired. They were properties that had been in the portfolio for a bit of time. And we're really in a state of disrepair. And I mean, the guy has a good reputation of making people a lot of money, mm -hmm. but I felt like he was a slumlord. Like he was, he was the he was making money at the expense of the tenants, is what I felt yeah. like. Yeah. And I thought long and hard about it. And I said, you know what? I I'm not gonna invest in this deal. And that's that's really when I made the conscious effort of like, hey, like I'm getting in this real estate game. But I want to make a positive impact. You know, I'm trying to reinvent property ownership as a positive mm -hmm. for communities. Landlords get such a 
bad rap. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, a lot of us are doing great. And I mean, I could, we could talk for another hour about all the things we do at our properties to create community, to make lives better for the residents. I don't run a charity. We make good money. We make a nice profit, but you can do well by doing good. And the bottom line doesn't always have to be about the almighty dollar. You don't have to squeeze yeah. every last cent out of a property. You don't. You can still be very profitable and make a really handsome return and mm. be an ethical human being. Mm. So, so that's what I try to do. I mean, the tagline for my book is um, produce passive income. Mm -hmm write your own story and direct your dollars towards positive change. And mm. that's something I try to do, just leave the world a little better than I found it. And that's yeah. something that I look for when I'm investing in other people's deals. I want to find someone who's of the same mind as me. You know, I want them to, I want to do well. I want to make money on my deal, but I want someone who's not going to be like a total jerk to <laughs> everybody. Yeah. And I want someone who's ethical. It's another thing I talk about sometimes is like, you know, there's certain rules that you're supposed to follow according to the SEC. Yeah. There are people who skirt those rules. Mm -hmm. And besides the fact that they can get in trouble for it, right? And they shouldn't do it. Do you really want to invest your money in someone who's skirting the rules? Because like, what else are they skirting? You know, what else mm -hmm. are they kind of, mm -hmm. well, you know, it, it, on the underwriting, oh, well, maybe I'll just do this because it makes the numbers look a little better. You know, I always worry about that kind of thing mm. i want to meet with someone who i think is sort of a, a straight shooter yeah um i don't want to skip this question how can um those watching or listening get a get, get your book oh well the best thing to do is to go to my website which is pacheni.com it's p like in peter i-c-h-e-n-y.com there's a ton of free resources there. If you go to the book page, you can actually download a free sample of the book. Um, and there's all those articles that are there. I mean, there's a ton of free resources. There's also a link to buy the book, which just came out on audiobook too. So if you don't want to read it, but you want to listen to it. Yeah, I'm going to get it right now. Yeah. So there's the audio version of it. It's available also as a Kindle and paperback and hardcover and all that stuff. Um, but everything's on Pacetti.com. So I would encourage people to go there. You can sign up for my newsletter there, which is free. And every month I'm sending out investor tips and educational uh, content. So it's, uh, I, I hope, <laughs> I hope it's a good resource for people. And like I said, that, everything's for free except for the, the book. So yep, and I just got it. Six hours and 23 minutes. That's it. Mm-hmm. Six hours and 23 minutes of this voice. I hope uh, that's all right. <laughs> I hope you can stand it for that. Sounds long. like money to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the last thing before I see if anyone has any questions. Um, well, actually, I, I did want to ask you another question before I ask you the words of wisdom. Uh, when you are operating as a GP, what hat do you wear? Hmm. That's a good question. In the earlier deals, I wore all the hats. Mm. Um, but as I've grown in my business, I have naturally found partners to work with. And we have naturally sort of organically found certain things that were more suited to doing and like doing better. As an example, uh, there's a guy named Albert on my team. Albert 
was a was an actuary at a Fortune 100 company. He loves the numbers. He just eats, breathes, sleeps numbers, and he loves like every month going through every single line item <laughs> in the general ledger and checking and uh, that price seems high and this and then check the invoice and mm -hmm. all that like and and he's got you know a team that works with him on that but that's what he loves like he just loves that i've done that on properties before definitely not my most fun task so <laughs> i let albert do that you know my other uh, partner justin he does a lot. He's got a lot. Him and his brother have like a, more of a construction background. So mm -hmm. they tend to do a lot more of the like CapEx type of work, a mm. lot of the exterior improvements, that kind of work. Um, I have a PMI background. Uh, so I'm a PMI certified project management professional. That mm -hmm. I got that when I was working in advertising, but it just means I'm really good at managing people, budgets, and timelines. So I tend to do that. I, I often will be running the asset management meetings that we have. Also with my marketing background, uh, I, you know, I'm very much involved in, okay, well, what are our rents and how, what marketing are we doing and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of where I play. And we'll all do different things. You know, if Albert's yeah. out or something, I can, we all can help each other out and step in on, on, in on others' roles, but that's kind of, we sort of found our little sweet spots. Yeah, it sounds like a family. Yeah, we are. You know, we we look at the deals together. I might find a deal through what broker connection I have, or Albert might, or or Justin might, and we'll we'll bring it in, and we'll all look at it. We'll all comment on the underwriting. We'll get it to a place where we feel comfortable. We'll all work on raising capital together, and then we'll all take turns with different parts of the asset management. So we're really involved through the whole life cycle of the deal. Awesome. That's amazing. What words of wisdom do you have um, for those who are watching you? They want to be like you. They want to get to <laughs> your level. Um, what would you tell them? Don't be like me. <laughs> no, no, no. But seriously, be like you, right? So like, that's the, the whole point in the book is, you know, like that tagline, write your own story, like what works for you? That's mm -hmm. the most important thing is, is how does it work for you? Um, but something that's really important, I think, and I, I did mention this earlier, success in the real estate business and the multifamily syndication business, but also I think success in life is really about those relationships. Yeah. Making those relationships, you know, there's that thing, uh, your network is your, your net worth is your network or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the bottom line is, you know, building relationships and relationships of trust um, are, 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 you know, good, strong relationships are very important. And, you know, being somebody that, that people can count on, that people can trust, uh, you know, being a person of your word, you know, yeah. all of that is really important. Uh, whether you're looking to sponsor deals and you want people to, to trust you to be a good steward of their capital. Um, if you're also looking to sponsor deals and you want to get deals from brokers and property managers, you have to have those relationships. But even as a passive investor, you need to have relationships with those individual syndicators. A lot of these deals, they, they can't, they, they often don't, but can't just like shout them from the rooftops. I mean, if it's a 506 C, yeah, they can put it on social media and sometimes they do. But in most, in a lot of cases, let's say, 
the, the deals and the people who are investing the deals are people who have a relationship with the sponsor ahead of time or have a good friend that has a good relationship with them, you know? So um, the relationships are really, really key. Mm, that's amazing. Um, and before I let you go, um, so I only check uh, the Zoom for questions because to go back between this and Facebook, it's, it's too much. Does anybody on the Zoom have any questions for Matt before we let him go and enjoy his night with his family? Um, and I always forget to take everybody off of mute. All right, you're all off mute now. Oh, I see some familiar friends. Hi. <laughs> Uh, let's see, make sure I didn't miss any questions or anything. I didn't see who was on earlier. They It, it didn't show uh, the participants. Yeah, it, it, um, people people tend to come in and out. I, um, so it's, and I never really try to look until the end because when I first started the podcast, I would have the participants up and I noticed that it will affect my interviewing style because I'm like, oh, people are leaving. Why are they leaving? And it gets in my head. So now if somebody comes on, great. If nobody comes on, everybody see it on LinkedIn anyway and Facebook. So I just, I hide everything to kind of protect my That's brain. Cool. Hey, Angel, what's up? Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. So, hey, Matt, I was just texting my friend, Frank Petalano. He's on our GP team. Yeah. And I was telling him, like, Matt, he's an investor with heart. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's uh, it's nice to see you. And Frank is a, I love Frank. He's such a great guy. Yeah, Frank's pretty cool. He's and on a, he's, he's on two GP teams with us. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, it's nice to see you. Yeah, absolutely. It's great seeing you too. Angel, how's your deal going? Um, the one I can't talk about or the one I can? <laughs> <laughs> we'll take another drink to that. So I guess the one that you can talk about. <laughs> um, well, you know, we like to invest here in our backyard, um, but they're, everything's going actually pretty well. Um, expenses are a little crazy, but we're working on getting all that under control. Okay. So we're looking at doing um, some various streams of income, like other than just big huge blanket rent bumps um because mm. i, I want to make sure that we're offering things to to our residents that they can afford to pay for and not things that they're being forced to pay for yeah that's wise um for the new people who joined um you have the option to take yourself off mute and ask matt a question or give him a comment before we let him go for the night and thank you angel absolutely Well, I guess I bored everybody, which is... <laughs> now you just answered all their questions, that's all. Well, Matt, I am excited to uh, start on your book as soon as I, got, I get a, a really good book to read every other podcast. So I'll be starting on your book. And Are you um, going to read it or listen to it? I'm curious. Listen, I, I don't have time to read. I am oh. always on the go. So yeah, it'll be me going probably to a meeting or looking at some property or something, and I'll just play it through the Bluetooth. I'll be curious to hear your feedback only because it literally just came out uh, like not even a week ago on audio. Okay. So, uh, I'm an audio I, professional. <laughs> I haven't had any feedback yet on it. Um, okay. I'm happy with how it came out. I think it sounded really good. So, yeah. 
was it was it difficult dealing with Audible and going through that whole process? All right, you want you want to see what you want to you want to see everything? Yes. yes. All right. I haven't. I have never shared this really. I can't believe I'm sharing <laughs> this on Facebook and 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 Zoom. This is what I did. So I um I wanted to record the the audio book, and I looked into a recording studio. And I live in New York City, and uh, I, I had spent so much money on the book. I'll never make the money back on the book, like the cost to like get the cover design, you know, like all the stuff that's yeah. involved in it. But I'm I'm okay with that. But I was like, the audio book, like, do I really want to spend another, you know, five to ten thousand dollars, like for for the audio? You you never, I'll never make that money back. And I had, I had gotten this cool, you know, I have this like cool microphone. So I was like, all right, I've got a nice microphone. I can just hook it up to my, you know, computer and record this. But I tried that and um, it was echoey, like really bad. Um, hmm. This, this room. Um, and so that's the good thing about going into a recording studio. So what I did Give me a second. I just have to reach <laughs> over here and grab one of them. I bought um, six uh, pieces of cardboard. Uh, they're they're four feet by six mm -hmm. feet, and, um, and and so I bought these uh, pieces of cardboard, and um, then I uh, so I got those on Amazon, and then I bought acoustical tiles mm -hmm. that are one one by one 12 inches by 12 inches mm -hmm. that's what's on there okay so wow. each of these squares is one of them and then i bought this uh 3m double-sided tape and tape these on by the way these things were a pain in the butt because they come from amazon all like compacted <laughs> so what you have to do you have to take them and soak them in water Really? Yeah, you soak them in water so that they fill back up. Then you have to wring them out, and then you have to put them in the dryer. And I had like oh, like probably a hundred because like I mean, look, this whole like right. So I yeah. made a whole bunch of these, and then um, I strategically placed them around the room to do the recording, and it was still really echoey. So then I got to the point where then I took them and I put them, and I had one here and mm -hmm. one here. And one over, and I basically built like a little fort mm -hmm. in my office. And my kids mm -hmm. were like, Daddy has a fort in his office. I mean, they loved it. <laughs> but that's what I did to record it. Unfortunately, it got really hot in here from having that in there. Oh, and then and then there were still some gaps. So then I took a big comforter and threw that on top of it. Mm -hmm. And then I recorded it. And it took me like a couple of weeks of recording sessions to get it all done. And mm. then Every track I had was like two hours long. Uh, and the finished version, when you hear it, you know, some of the tracks are 15 minutes, some of them are 45 minutes, how to edit them. Cause mm. I would be reading my book and I would, you know, I would mess something up and I'd have to repeat it. Yeah, you know, my tongue would get tied. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was just a lot of work with the editing and stuff. But I ended up getting getting it done. I had a lot of fun doing it. And I think the finished product sounds pretty darn good. Like, I don't know that, I mean, you could tell me when you listen to it, I don't know that you could tell that it wasn't done in a professional studio. Mm. Sounds, I think, really good. I'm excited. Can't wait. Now I will start <laughs> tomorrow as soon as I get in the car. Thanks. <laughs> as soon as I finish, I'll reach out to you and let you know my, my thoughts.
yeah, give me your, I mean, and don't hold back. Like I, I'm all for constructive <laughs> criticism, you know? Okay. Well, I will, that, that means I'll put it in a, a email because I can be very, um, very tough critic. Oh, not, all right. Not really. I say that not really. <laughs> well, if you have nice things to say, you know, review on Amazon or Audible would be amazing. Yes. If you don't have anything nice to say, then just send Leave it, it out. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. Um, all right, going once, going twice. Any any questions or comments for Matt before we let him go? Give him two seconds and see if they um unmuting themselves. Nope. All right. Well, sir, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your wisdom, and I'm excited for this book. And um you've 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 shown why people were so excited you gave a a wealth of information and um through your experiences as well and i appreciate that well thanks i had a lot of fun <laughs> talking with you tonight yes well, it, it was a lot of fun as a guest. yes thanks for coming on and uh i'll be chopping up the clips and putting them everywhere so i'll be seeing you a lot soon <laughs> oh yeah please tag me and uh again it was a pleasure thank you so much you too see you later all right take care Bye bye bye